Bojo Anin. Hi, I'm Serene Fox, and this is Into the Anthropocene, the podcast where we talk to smart and interesting people tackling one of the most urgent issues of our time, our impact on the planet. We'd like to acknowledge that we're recording this podcast on the land of the Mississaugas of New Credit and the traditional territories of the Wendat, Anishinaabe, and Haudenosaunee Nations. In our last episode, we went into the woods and explored Vancouver Island's old growth forests. Harley Rustad told us about Big Lonely Doug, Canada's second largest Douglas fir tree. Big Lonely Doug is really big. It would take about six or seven people holding hands arm in arm to get around its, its trunk at the base. And Ken Wu of the Ancient Forest Alliance. Few people realize that uh, the grandest forests on planet Earth, in terms of gigantic trees, are on Vancouver Island, second only in grandeur to the U.S. redwoods and sequoias in California. And Joe Martin, carver from the island's Cloquiat Nation and longtime activist, shared what an old-growth forest means to him and his people. Mother Nature will provide for our needs, but not our greed. And then, so, you know, those, those are things, sir, that uh, uh, a lot of people don't get. You know, they don't get that. In this, our final episode, we're going to address the questions that may have been bouncing around your head throughout the series. After all we've heard about human impact, is the Earth doomed? What can we actually do? Can we transform this age of humans into a good Anthropocene? Today, we have a special guest to help us think about these questions. I have with me Ashley Wallace from Environmental Defense. Environmental Defense is an organization that empowers Canadians to take action. They work with industry to advance cleaner and greener ways to build the economy. And they encourage government to bring in policies that protect our environment. Thank you so much for joining me today, Ashley. Thank you so much for having me. I'm hoping that we can have a conversation about some of the uh, the things that maybe mean we're not quite so doomed. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> Many people who see the Anthropocene exhibition or the documentary film come away feeling all kinds of emotions. The vastness of human impact on Earth can seem overwhelming. What can one person do in the face of all this immense planetary change? Here's science writer Gaia Vince from episode two. Now you can feel that it's impossible when these are huge global challenges that we face, but, but there are things that everybody can do. I mean, if you're improving your local environment, you're doing a little bit towards improving the wider environment. Ashley, what are some of the day-to-day changes we can make in our lives to help turn this into a good Anthropocene? Well, there's actually lots of opportunities. Um, We make millions of small choices every day, uh, which add up to the potential to make a really big difference. Some of these definitely fall under the banner of kind of conscious consumerism, but that doesn't necessarily just mean buying other things. It might mean choosing not to engage in certain activities or not to buy certain things at all. Um, You know, when it comes to things like transportation, there's often opportunities to consider driving less. We can cycle, we can walk. 
especially short distances. If you live in an urban center, you consider taking transit where it's available. Um, Even things like reducing the number of flights you take. Diet. So some people, you know, you talk about vegetarianism or veganism as a way to reduce your carbon footprint or the impact you're having on the planet. You don't necessarily need to do that every day. You know, you can have meatless Monday. You can choose to have half of your meals be vegetarian. And the impact that that will have will be really significant, especially if we all do it. Let's talk more about carbon. The sharp increase of carbon dioxide in our atmosphere is one of the markers of the Anthropocene. Here's geologist and Anthropocene Working Group Chair Jan Zalashevich. I think it's clear that one of the drivers of the Anthropocene, you know, is is our enormous use of carbon-based fuels. And the sooner that we can obtain our energy from alternative sources, you know, I think the you know the, the less dramatic the Anthropocene will become. Ashley, can you tell us why carbon is something we need to be thinking about and What is this carbon footprint phrase we hear so much about? Yeah, so carbon, or specifically carbon dioxide, is a greenhouse gas. And basically what that means is when it ends up in our atmosphere, it acts like a greenhouse and can trap heat and energy, which is one of the things that's leading to things like global climate change. Um, And so a carbon footprint is basically a way for us to track the amount of carbon associated with the everyday actions or products that we're using. So as a conscientious consumer, you might want to consider um, buying products that have a lower carbon footprint or considering activities that have a lower carbon footprint. Um, things like walking or cycling, for example, have a much lower carbon footprint than flying or driving your car. You know, you just explained that so beautifully. And I think a lot of people who are listening are still probably thinking, I get carbon, but how is this a direct relationship with climate change? If you're going to lay it out for us in like climate change and carbon for dummies, what, what is that re- direct relationship? Yeah, so part of that is actually transitioning away from those carbon-based fuels. And that's definitely something we're already starting to see movement on um, in terms of the way we power our electricity grid. We're seeing more solar and wind, um, geothermals really kind of coming into the mix. So that's one way. And then in terms of actual fuels, we can be looking at alternatives like biofuels. um, As we do a better job of collecting organic food waste, there's an opportunity to turn that into biodiesel, um, which is a much more sustainable alternative than kind of harvesting the bones of our dinosaur ancestors and burning it. (laughs) You know, in episode one, I interviewed the artists behind the Anthropocene Project, Edward Butinsky, Jennifer Batchwal, and Nicolas Dupontier. They introduced us to the concept of techno-fossils. That's all the stuff we create as humans that will end up in the layers of the earth. Well, concrete being, or cement being, the greatest techno-fossil that we've left uh, behind. And then plastics, I think, is, is soon followed by, these days, by, uh, uh, by cement. So, so it is these things that we're leaving in volumes behind. Volumes to the point of, like, their estimation is that the technosphere, which is the entire aggregate of human-created or altered material on Earth, is 30 trillion tons. That is the latest estimate. Like, try to imagine that. Like that that's how much shit <laughs> like we create <laughs> and and throw away. That's all our crap. That's our crap. If you visit the exhibition or see the documentary, you'll see the images and footage of the Dandora landfill in Kenya. 
I was blown away by one image in particular. In it, there are just piles and piles and piles of plastic bottles. Actually, your organization, Environmental Defense, is working right now to try to divert single-use plastic bottles from landfills in Ontario. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, so... Ontario currently only recycles about 50% of the bottles which are sold to the market, um, which is quite sad, especially because of all of the plastics that we create. Plastic bottles are actually highly recyclable. They're just not being captured, which means that they're not being turned into new things. They're ending up in landfills. They're ending up in the environment. Um, The other sad thing is that there's actually a really easy solution to this. And so Ontario is actually one of only two provinces in Canada that doesn't have a deposit return system for single-use plastic bottles. Um, We do in Ontario have a deposit return system for alcoholic beverage containers. So if anybody is familiar with buying a beer or a bottle of wine, you pay a small fee. And then when you return it um, for it to be reused or recycled, you get your money back. This would be a really great option for plastic bottles. We know in other provinces that have deposit systems, they recycle upwards of 72 to 92% of their bottles, um, which is so much better than we're doing. And because Ontario has so many people um, and we do consume so many bottles, the opportunity here for us to get this right and bring the right policy into place is huge. Yeah, like 72 to 92%. Like Those numbers are great. I want to do that. (laughs) (laughs) Me too. And every time I see a bottle on the street, I'm just like, gah, why don't we have a deposit system? (laughs) I know. Seriously. I'm always that girl at the end of the party that's like, are you going to take your deposits? Because I'll return them. (laughs) So how big a problem are plastics locally and globally? So as we heard from Edward and Jennifer earlier, I mean, plastics will never fully decompose. Um, They do sometimes disappear because they've broken down into smaller and smaller pieces, but mostly they end up uh, piling up in landfills and in the environment where they will be for thousands of years. (laughs) Um, You know, 60% of the plastic that has ever been made um, has been discarded at this point and is in landfills or the environment, um, which is actually enough to bury Manhattan under five kilometers of plastic waste. So just like monumental. Um, Here in Canada, actually, we only recycle 11% of our plastic waste, and about 10,000 metric tons end up in the Great Lakes every year. Um, You know, when they end up in the environment or they end up in the lakes, they do break down into those smaller pieces, and then they are easily eaten by things like fish. Um, You know, they end up in mollusks and oysters, and we end up ingesting those and potentially ingesting the plastics as well. However, (laughs) on a positive note, um, I have seen a huge increase in public awareness of this issue. Um, People are talking about it in Canada. They're talking about it around the world. There's a lot of public awareness and support for change now, uh, both locally and globally. So I think there's a really significant opportunity that we're looking at to reduce our plastic use and to reduce plastic pollution. There is hope. There's hope. Okay, so let's shift gears a bit. In episode three of our series, we tackled how planetary change and climate change does not impact everyone equally, nor are we all equally responsible. We talked about decolonizing the Anthropocene and addressed issues of environmental racism. What can we do about this? Here's anthropologist Zoe Todd and sociologist Ingrid Waldron. We need to start making sure that the stories of diverse people all around the globe are given um, you know, given space and time and, and are acknowledged and, and 
and lift it up. And so, you know, if you know the Anthropocene, you know, to decolonize it is to make sure that there isn't a singular story told about it, but there are many, many, many different stories that give us the tools to understand how dynamic the experience of living on this planet is and how many different ways we have to address the different um, experiences that the Anthropocene is creating. So making sure that we really learn to pay attention to one another and have a reciprocal relationship to each other's knowledges and to the planet itself, I think will go a long way in changing the conversation. For everyday citizens, I think the first thing to do is to learn about environmental racism and learn about the cases of environmental racism in this province and certainly across Canada. Uh, often the people who contact me also say, you know, how do I become a good ally? They, they, they're white, but they they don't want to step on anybody's toes. And, and I think there's a lot of literature on that online. How do you become an ally? But I think if you don't know anything about this issue, start with an environmental organization and then through that organization, that's how you get to meet the people who are affected. Because I think ultimately, you you need to work with the people who are affected, not just the environmental organizations. This is a topic that hits really close to home for me. Many members of my family have been affected directly by mercury poisoning in the water from a paper mill that was just upstream from my community. My mom has suffered from things like floating kidneys, but also just the effect of what it meant for her family to be doing something that they've always done, which is fish and eat the fish from the waters that we were traditionally have always fished in, and it made them sick. And I think also if you look at places like Grassy Narrows, where people have been trying to get these things looked at and trying to get the government to take them seriously and to address the ways in which people have been affected, I think we need to look further into this and we need to acknowledge not that this is just happening, but we need to see these people as human beings and the intergenerational effects of environmental racism as well. And I know that sometimes when we get really personal, we can automatically go to a place where we feel hopeless. But I don't like that approach. I think there are ways for us to get involved and there are ways to change our future. So what are environmental organizations doing to help move forward issues of diversity and inclusion? Is this issue becoming more prominent in environmental movements? Yeah, so it is, which is great. I think for a really long time, um, environmental advocacy or environmental engagement was really something that um, was seen more of as a privilege. Like once all of your other basic needs were taken care of, then you could start caring about the environment. And obviously that approach has failed number of communities, like hundreds of communities all around the world. Um, So that awareness is good. I think that, you know, we're still really at the beginning of the journey. Um, We're starting to see People from marginalized communities generally tend to be more significantly impacted by environmental harm, whether it be poor water quality or it be the impacts of climate change. Um, And there's an awareness in the environmental movement that we can't just make decisions and act that doesn't serve them. It doesn't serve the purpose or the cause. Um, And so we're going in and establishing new relationships and learning new things from these communities. But it is early days and establishing those meaningful relationships and building 
building that trust is such an important piece that we need to get right um, before we can kind of tackle these issues together. And it is going to take working together collectively, globally, um, for us to really achieve the goals we want in terms of a healthy planet and a healthy community. Yeah, I totally agree. And relationship building is where it's at. The more we see each other as humans that are all interconnected with the environment, I think the more we have a really good place to fight together. For sure. And there's so much to learn, you know, like the second you sit down and you have a conversation with somebody and you better understand, like, you know, the story that you were saying about your mother, like understanding that personal connection, that is what motivates real action. Um, And we have not done a great job of that in the past. So I'm really happy to see that we're at least starting the journey to get there. In episode three, we also spoke with Inuit activist and Nobel Prize nominee Celia Watt-Cloutier, and she shared with us why climate change is also a human rights issue. The Arctic is certainly a place that feels deeply the impacts of climate change. We asked Celia, how does she see the future of the Arctic? It gives me hope each time I go and speak to various audiences across our country and beyond, that once they see that human connection to our world, that they are starting to shift their perspectives and their attitudes uh, towards the Arctic and its people and make the connections that uh, the people of the Arctic and the Arctic's uh, landscape and icecape is all connected to everyone else. So it's really about connectivity. Ashley, how has the environmental movement changed over the past decade? Do you find people are becoming more aware of issues such as global warming? And are people really feeling that connection that Sila talked about? I mean, I think that the environmental movement has definitely become much more mainstream. Um, There's much more overall awareness and acceptance of environmental threats, um, but also, I think, hope in addressing them. Um, You know, there's also increasingly opportunities to kind of make this environmental economic connection, which helps bring even more people into the conversation. You know, we live in a very globalized world. Uh, We see pictures or video of devastating forest fires, horrible floods, and I mean, the thing is, is having that kind of constant input of of news and natural disaster media, I mean, you can either see it as being something that kind of holds you down or you can see it as being something that motivates you to action. And, you know, cultural change is a slow process. But as Sheila said, we're finding that awareness and desire for action is really growing and it's particularly growing in children and young people. In episode five, we spoke with Winnie Kiru. She's a wildlife biologist who has dedicated her life to the conservation of elephants. She shared the powerful story of organizing the burning of 105 tons of confiscated illegal elephant ivory and rhinoceros horn. Winnie sees the conservation of endangered elephants as something we can all help with. What can we do? Okay, I think the global community needs to appreciate that they have a role in conserving Africa's elephants. If you care about elephants, you should make sure that your voice is heard, even by the legislature, by those who make decisions about how your tax money goes back to help elephants. The other role that everybody in the world has is to disseminate correct information 
about elephants, about conservation, about Africa, and about Africans. Ashley, so many of our fellow species all over this planet are endangered by human activities. Habitat loss and warming oceans are just some of the changes we're making that decimate species populations. What should we be doing when it comes to helping preserve the species we share this planet with? So all of the issues are really closely connected, you know, ending deforestation, protecting old growth forests. Those things are going to help to preserve species habitat, and they're also going to limit climate change. Limiting climate change will also help to preserve species, um, you know, because some of their habitats could be decimated by climate change or global warming or ocean warming or rising temperatures, uh, you know, summer heat waves. But another activity that also harms species is the human activity of creating toxic chemicals and then not really taking particularly good care of them. Um, so an example that people are super familiar with, uh, way back in 1945, we introduced DDT to the environment. Um, and as a result, we saw huge population crashes um, in like the bald eagle population. Basically, the chemical was making it so that their eggs were so fragile that when they sat on them, they would just shatter, which is really upsetting. Um, and in 1962, Rachel Carson released her book, Silent Spring, and kind of really put a, a spotlight on the issue. And as a result, in the 70s, there was actually a ban put in place on DDT. And since then, we've actually seen the population rebound. Like we're having, we're seeing a lot more bald eagles and some of the other species that were impacted by DDT. So this is to say that like we can engage in a really bad behavior, but then recognize that we're going down the wrong path. And it is possible to reverse course and to actually um, save some of these species that we've put in harm's way. Let's also talk about us, the human species. We are increasingly living in cities. Cities are key examples of the Anthropocene, human-created expanses of concrete, steel, pavement, and glass. We asked our guests from episode four what a city looks like in a good Anthropocene, and how can we get there? Here's Toronto Atmospheric Fund CEO Julia Langer. Maybe if we help people understand, you know, why why we're, the density of our cities needs to change or why we actually need transit instead of roads, understand that it's for eliminating congestion, it's for creating density and therefore ridership, it's because you can then walk to work and be healthier, and it's also about carbon reduction. Maybe all together then everybody will sort of understand. And, and it's that collaboration between uh, individuals, business, and government that's really going to make for a good Anthropocene. That's my belief. Ashley, what do you think of the notion that cities can become leaders in a good Anthropocene? So we actually know that many cities are already leading the way um, when it comes to cutting emissions, for example. So specifically when we're looking at carbon, um, things like decarbonizing electricity systems. So switching to things like solar energy, geothermal energy, um, optimizing energy use in buildings. So to increase efficiencies, um, providing cleaner and affordable alternatives to cars. So that can be more conventional public transit like buses or subways 
subways or it can be bike share programs, um, you know, or building cities that have better pedestrian infrastructure. You know, when we're building for density and not sprawl, we need to make sure that we're maintaining those hard urban boundaries so that we're preserving green space and farmland. Um, like in Ontario, just outside of Toronto, is the green belt. Um, and it's really important that we preserve that land. And when we do, it drives us to kind of build more smart uh, density in an urban area. I live in the green belt, so I'm 100% for protecting it. I eat from the green belt, so I am also 100% for protecting it. (laughs) On the same page. (laughs) Can we for a moment focus on governments as agents of change? Quite a few of our guests mentioned taking action on a political level. And in our last episode, Ken Wu of the Ancient Forest Alliance described what he thought it would take for change to happen. What you'll typically hear from most um, people is that they are willing to do their part in terms of um, recycling and composting and riding their bicycle more. These are all good things, but the most important thing we need are laws and regulations. But people also need to speak up to um, Justin Trudeau and to the provinces. People do need to get political, they need to speak up, they need to engage in the democratic process and follow the environmental campaigns of environmental groups. This is my jam. Ashley, let's talk about getting political. So totally my jam too. (laughs) I could not agree more. A lot of people don't realize that they can get involved in political decision making outside of elections. You don't just have to, you know, your your vote doesn't stop on the day you vote. Um, You need to continue to write to or call or meet with your local MP or MPP. You know, they actually really want to hear what matters to their constituents. And letting government know both when they're doing stuff that you don't like and also stuff when you do because I think really often governments are taking steps in a positive direction and they just hear from you know a few people who are a little bit grumpy about more movement on environmental issues and then the brakes are on well you know what if we're seeing good momentum in a direction that's going to help have a healthy planet and healthy people we need to be calling our elected officials or writing them and being like good job that was a step in the right direction um And, you know, also because it works when we get political, Um, kind of coming back to the whole plastics conversation. uh, There's been a lot of public pressure recently from local groups to end plastic pollution from single use items like straws. Um, Small groups and individuals are kind of starting to come together and there's this kind of support and momentum building. Um, And we're seeing that that is actually bringing businesses on board. And then in turn, you know, municipalities are starting to get on board and we're seeing these like really grassroots little micro straw bands kind of pop up. Um, And that's really an example of what happens when people stay engaged in, in the political process and about the issues that matter to them. And I guess this all comes down to the question, what do we want our future to look like? Writer Harley Rustad took up this question in relation to Big Lonely Doug. Doug is the thousand-year-old Douglas fir tree that stands alone in a swath of clear-cut. To come in contact with Big Lonely Doug and to, to see it in a photograph, it's really to be confronted with our past and our future. Sometimes that's a pretty dark past. That can be a very dark past when we're looking at our timber history and the, and the clear cuts. And, but it also asks us, what do we want our future to look like? Do we want it to look like a single tree standing in a wasteland completely on its own? Or do we want something more? Ashley, what is that something more? What kind of future can you imagine for this planet? 
Oh, gosh. Um, You know, a true circular economy, one where nothing is wasted, where we don't live beyond our means, um, where we leave space for nature to provide the clean water and air that we need to survive, um, you know, the food that we need to eat. Um, You know, there's this, this day, Earth Overshoot Day, which is the day every year where we have kind of overshot what the earth can provide for us. Um, And this year, that day was on August 1st. So every day since then, like if you think about the earth as a bank account, every day since, uh, sorry, since August 1st, we've essentially been going into overdraft. How great would it be if we ended up at a place where we actually lived within the bounds of the planet and there was no earth overshoot day because on January 1st, we just reset and we were ready to kind of keep living without going into overdraft. I'm also thinking about Joe Martin, the Out Carver from episode six, and how he spoke so eloquently about respect. Respect is the first teaching of indigenous peoples here and, and on the West Coast, and I imagine that's uh, pretty much for everywhere. But here, uh, I can tell you about it from my home because that's what I was taught. It's the first teaching and first law that pertains to all the people in the world. Everyone has a certain measure of self-respect. And they say when you make decisions in respect, you'll find that not much will go wrong. Yeah, that's so interesting because I feel like, um, you know, especially from more of a colonial perspective, we have a tendency to see ourselves as outside of nature or beyond nature. And so, you know, when we're making decisions, they're not about necessarily respecting the planet that provides us with food and water and and a place to call home. Um, we tend to be much more engaged in these human-created systems of, of wealth or success. Um, And yeah, I think just remembering that we are essentially animals. We are animals, not essentially. We are literally animals. (laughs) And, you know, if we want to continue to live here, then showing respect to the planet is the first thing that we need to do to show respect for ourselves. Yeah, I totally agree. And I also, I want to believe that if people respected the earth and saw the earth as part of their family, that that inherent respect would be there. I see creation as my relatives, and so they demand respect, just the way that my big sisters would, for sure. (laughs) It's interesting because the Anthropocene artists see this project as a way to shift consciousness, because shifting consciousness is the beginning of change. So what potential does this new proposed epoch, Anthropocene, have to change how we see ourselves and how we see our planet? Yeah, I mean, I hope that uh, people find it eye-opening. You know, when you realize that we have had such a huge impact on the planet, and actually a lot of that has been in a relatively short amount of time, um, it kind of makes you maybe think about the opposite. So it's like, we could still be having a huge impact, but how could we have a huge impact in a positive direction? You know, like, what's the possibility there? What could we be doing to make it better? Um, People are so creative and innovative. And I think that 
you know, I would hope that when people kind of see this exhibit and they walk away, um, they aren't completely disheartened. They're also inspired by the possibility of what humans might be able to do to to reverse some of these things that we've probably unintentionally and highly carelessly um, done over the last few centuries. Yeah, and I think it is exciting to think of the sheer inventiveness and ingenuity of the human species. Yeah, for sure. Like there are some exciting technological advances that are happening, um, you know, in recycling, for example. So there's advancements in this thing called chemical recycling. So you can reduce plastic down into its basic monomers and then you can make new plastics from it. Um, and this is different than traditional recycling because it means we don't have to worry about things like contamination um, or all the plastics that we've created that we have no idea idea how to deal with. Um, This gives us another avenue or, um, you know, advancements in clean energy. Uh, You know, even 10, 15 years ago, getting solar panels on your house was incredibly expensive, but prices have come down and now there's an opportunity for individuals to be kind of generating their own clean energy. There's also washing machines that can clean a load of laundry with a single cup of water. Um, So there's definitely stuff that's happening. I think what we need to do is we need to find a way to amplify that and energize that and not get kind of too stuck in these old patterns. Um, You know, we need to move beyond it. And I think that there really is an opportunity for to humans to kind of dig ourselves out of this. Yeah, I agree. You know, we know from the past that when there is global momentum around something and there is cooperation, that we can change course. An example would be back when I was a kid, I know all anybody ever talked about was the hole in the ozone layer. Oh, the ozone layer, like we're all going to burn. It was like a huge deal. (laughs) Um, But, you know, through global cooperation and the Montreal Protocol, we actually have been able to reverse that, that damage. And actually we're seeing improvements in the ozone layer, which is is huge. So, so it shows that like when we do work together, we can achieve things. Um, it's mostly about making sure that that happens. And that mostly happens when there is a very real and urgent kind of threat. And so a number of the issues that we've talked about today, I think it's about making sure that people are aware that the threat is real. But that doesn't necessarily be, need to be in itself the thing that stops us in our tracks. What it needs to do is inspire us to work together. Ashley Wallace from Environmental Defense. Thank you, Chi Miigwech, so much for being with me today and helping us reflect on this entire series and think about what we can do to make our future a good Anthropocene. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. (laughs) For more information on all of the great work Environmental Defense is doing for our environment, visit their website, environmentaldefense.ca. You can also find this link in our podcast description. Well, that's it. Seven episodes, and I feel like we only scratched the surface. I'd like to send out a huge chimiguitch, a huge thank you to all of our amazing guests. And thanks to you as well for joining us on this journey into the Anthropocene. What does the Anthropocene mean to you? Is a good Anthropocene possible? The answers lie within you. They really do. We began this series with my interview with the Anthropocene artist, and I think it's only fitting to give the last word to filmmaker Jennifer Batchwal. If we have the ingenuity to thrive, we also have the ingenuity to change. And people are already doing that in in vast numbers around the world. And when you engage with them and see them, um, see what they're doing, what what we're capable of, that is an uplifting moment and and I I feel it I have felt that not always 
but I do feel it. For more information, visit our website at www.ago.ca. Into the Anthropocene, Our Impact on Earth was produced by the Art Gallery of Ontario in Toronto to go along with the exhibition Anthropocene, featuring the works of Edward Brutinsky, Jennifer Batchwal, and Nicolas de Pensier. The exhibition is on at the Art Gallery of Ontario and the National Gallery of Canada from the end of September 2018 until early 2019. For more information, visit our website at www.ago.ca.